You take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to preach a sermon, the first of a couple or three, on a paragraph that is uh, instrumental in our understanding of what it means to be a child of God. And the sermon's title is, Against the Darkness, Glorious Light. The Reformation mantra, the Reformation ad-lib, the words written on the walls of Geneva to commemorate the great work of the 1500s and the Magisterial Reformation are this, and they're there today. After darkness, light. And what we have as an opportunity to see in this passage is that against the great darkness of who we are, there is a glorious light that is revealed. And so last week we spent our entire time in a depressing, um, deplorable set of verses showing our weakness, our sin, our failure. And this morning we're going to begin the journey out of the valley. We're not going to get complete. We're not going to finish it. We're going to begin it. In verses 1 through 3, which we, we, let's, let's read it together. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, or the flesh, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the whole of the gospel is contained in these two words. But God. What we have here is a bleak and dark backdrop so that the magnificence of the glory of God might shine. So that God's glory might be revealed. So that we might understand better who God is. Because we know now properly who we are in our nature. In contrasting Himself with us, He shows Himself to be holy, separate. Set apart, different. And so we want to look at this. And I'm going to review back over verses 1 through 3 and then deal with really, I'm going to really deal with two words this morning, but God. That's it. But, but we're, going to, we're going to do a lot to get there, okay? Man is dead in his natural self. Look at verse 1. And you who were dead... I said last week, if you look that word up and what it means, what it means is dead. There's no way around the pronouncement. 
There's no backdoor way to say, well, Paul, I know we're really bad, but, but there's a little spark of goodness in all of us. That might be what the world wants us to believe. That might be what some of you even have accepted and believed in your grid of understanding the world and your worldview is that man is kind of good, partly good, but I know he has some bad things in him. So, you know, he needs some help. He needs medicine. He needs to be cured. That's not at all what Paul says. Paul doesn't say man is kind of bad and kind of good. What God, what God through the Apostle Paul says about mankind is, mankind is dead, lifeless, not on life support, in the tomb, dead. The spirit is left. They are gone. They are dead. He can't say it any clearer than that. But yet he wants to expound it. He wants to explain it. And that's what I want to do. Truly, if you accept this one fact, if you believe this one thing that the Bible clearly teaches here, and the passage we read in Romans 5, he repeats it, and he exemplifies it in John 11 by raising Lazarus from the dead, and he exemplifies it in the fact that sin being poured out on Christ caused him to die, he has exemplified it over and over and over for us that we might clearly see we are dead. Once you accept the fact that you and your natural self, you are dead. You are forced then. You have no hope outside of accepting all of the beliefs presented to us in biblical theology. Also called Reformed theology. It has a lot of names. You, you have no choice. This is why. You have to answer one question. Believing the Word of God, accepting it as His Word, when it says you are dead, you have to ask the question, which has been asked over and over again, what can a dead man do? If the answer is nothing then the only solution to that problem is someone from the outside making them alive. The biggest lie being projected as a gospel in our day in the church is that you have the ability in your natural self to come to God However, whenever, through whatever means ever, you want to come. That is the biggest lie, which is deceiving the most of the church. And it's being ingested. And it's being brought into conjunction with our American freedom pride. It doesn't sell all over the world. John MacArthur says one of the most amazing things he ever did was go and preach behind the Iron Curtain countries in Eastern Europe. And when he got there, he expected to find that he would have to convince them of this fact, that man was dead and couldn't save himself. He didn't have to convince them. They believed it. In our country, we don't believe it. We've bought the lie of humanistic theology being presented as the gospel which says man is basically good with some flaws and needs some help. 
That is a modern idea. That is an idea we inherit from Nietzsche, from Descartes, from Benjamin Franklin, from Thomas Jefferson. We inherit it from humanist philosophers, not from the Bible. The Bible never presents man as partly good, partly bad, but in his nature, completely fallen. And so in this verse, in this one phrase, you were dead, Paul sums up the hopelessness of the condition of all men. In your nature, you're dead. How are we dead, Paul? What do you mean by that? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. In your trespasses and sins which you once walked. So, trespasses and sins is the original condition. We are sinners from birth, and yet we confirm our sinfulness through our walk, our conduct, our daily lives, our active unrighteousness. We have in us an inherited original unrighteousness, which when given the opportunity we act on, making it an active unrighteousness. The best example to see this is to look at a child. I've got a six-month-old. Yesterday, I'm changing her diaper, and there's a curtain next to it. It's gold. shimmers. The wind was blowing. It was moving. And little Hope reached over with her hand and grabbed it to put it in her mouth. I took her hand off. I held her hand tightly. She looked in my eyes, and I said with a firm look, no. I let her hand go. She smiled. I didn't have to teach her that. I didn't have to I didn't have to say, honey, when you get a little older, rebel against mommy and daddy. Why? Because as cute and lovable and huggable as my daughter is, in her very nature she's a sinner. And that will only become more pronounced, as we all know, not less. Why will it become more pronounced? Because in our nature we are sinners. And then Paul says we become active in our sin. And then we see that, look what it says in the next clause, that we are now in our environment impacted by sin. The fallen nature or course of this world. The world systems are set up. And they are fallen. They are sinful. And so now you have a sinner who is acting on their rebellious sin and they're in a world that is sinful. So they're becoming exceedingly sinful. And not only will she have to deal with her flesh and my little girl will have to deal with the environment of sin in this world, but look what the next phrase says. Following the prince of the power of the air. So now, my little girl, and all of us, not only do we, are we born sinners and in an environment of sin, but we're influenced from the demonic powers to sin and rebel against God. This is a deplorable condition. This is a desperate situation. This is hopeless. If you don't feel the grip of hopelessness in your flesh, you cannot be saved. If you think you have any hope, Outside of Christ, you cannot be saved. You must come to the end of your rope. You must hit the bottom of the well. You must look up because there's no way to look down. That's 
That's where you have to come in life before you can cry out mercy and receive His mercy. And, and, and you say, well, this theology thing, I'm just not into theology. Listen, everybody's into theology. Everybody does theology. There's no exceptions. The rankest, most pagan atheist in the world is doing theology every day. And the theology he's doing and you're doing is impacting every decision he makes. And so when I tell you it is a fallen condition that this world is in and we are in, it impacts how I respond. Let me explain it to you this way. When the world tells people they're basically good with a little flaw that needs correcting, they live life that way. And, and what it leads them to is the belief that they can do 50% of what it takes to get to heaven and Jesus will do the other 50%. What it leads them to is to look at a sinner and say, that guy's bad and I'm good. What it leads them to is, as Josh confessed, it leads them to the belief that, you know, I got it right. They ought to just get it right. That guy's not worthy of my time. That gal's in so much of a desperate situation, there's no hope for her. This belief in humanism has impacted every decision we make. And so, that's our condition. That is our nature. That's who we are. We are by sinners dead. We are by nature dead. And we are actively sinning. And we're walking according to the sinful ways of this world. And we are under the powerful influence of the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan himself and all of his minions. We are dead. We are dead in nature and dead in action. This is a desperate situation, one that we can't even imagine in reality. And so if Paul stopped here, if he put a period and end of letter, what would we do? What, 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 what offer of hope would we have? He didn't put a period and stop writing. He put a conjunction. Two little words, two little letters. Delta epsilon. There. But. But. God. So. He says, "This is who you are." But now I want to tell you who God is. But God, who is this God that we're talking about in this verse? Well, I've just jotted down some things here. God, first of all, is sovereign. Sovereign is another way to say he is the king. He is the king. There is not one molecule, as R.C. Sproul says, in all of the world that he does not have complete power over. If there is one molecule which he does not have power over, 
He is not God. The molecule is. He is sovereign over everything. Not over some things. Not over the good things. Not over, not over the things we, we, we commonly call grace and providence. Good providence. He is sovereign over wickedness, sin, death. He is sovereign over it all. He is sovereign, Paul is saying, over those who are born dead in their trespasses and active in their rebellious sin, walking according to the ways of this world and living under the power of the influence of the prince of the powers of air. That's him. He is sovereign over all things. Psalm 115 presents him this way. But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. When the pagans say, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever pleases Him, is another way to understand that. So God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the world, the universe. He is sovereign over man. He is sovereign over the demons of hell. He is sovereign over all things. God is also all-powerful. We call that in theology for a big word, omnipotence. It means He can do all His holy will as the catechism teaches us. God can do all His holy will. There's no need to construct these philosophical arguments about can God move the largest stone which is unmovable. Can God sin? No. No. God can do all His holy will. That's what we mean when we say He is all-powerful. Nothing can stay His hand. Nothing can resist Him in His mighty works. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. And God is all-knowing. We call that omniscience. That means... He knows everything perfectly. He doesn't know, know some things and then as the contingencies play out, He's just a little smarter than we are so He knows ahead of time what's going to happen. He knows everything from the beginning as if it is already done and complete. The best way for us to, to uh, understand this, if we look back at chapter 1, is that God is writing the script. He wrote the script in eternity past of how everything in this world would work, how it would play out. And now we are living the script. God being not bound by time, our time is now over us and over time already knowing the end from the beginning. That's why the Revelator could write, He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is holy. Peter says, quoting the Old Covenant, Be holy as I am holy. God is holy. What does that mean? Separate. Set apart. Not like us. God is not a superhuman with magic powers. God is God and we are not. He is the one being in all the universe and we are the becomings. 
He is unchanging and we are ever changing. God is holy. And morally, God is holy in His righteousness. He's holy in His character, in His being, in His existence. I am who I am. That's His covenant and memorial name, Yahweh. But He is not only in His being set apart, but He is in His righteousness set apart. Because He is not like us in the fact that He is is righteous on someone else's merit. God is righteousness. Therefore, whatever God does is right. The only reason you and I know what is right is because we know God. And He has communicated to us what is right in His Word. Right, being right, being just, things being right or just is not arbitrary and it's not determined by the cultures of mankind. It is determined and set forth by God Himself. So much so that we could say this. Had God said in His Ten Commandments, you shall murder, it would have been right. No, it couldn't be. Yes. If God says it, it is right. But He didn't say that, did He? So therefore we know murder is wrong. And I would conjecture to you, all cultures know murder is wrong. And they have always known it is wrong. And it is not because they themselves are good. It's because a righteous God has set forth His character. And so therefore murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. Abusing children is wrong. It's not that way because we feel it's that way. It's that way because God is wholly separate from those things. He is not those things. Therefore, we have a definition, an objective definition of right and wrong. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is holy. God, this but God phrase contains the fact that God is angry. He is wrathful, the Bible says. I want to be, I want to be crystal clear in what I say. God's wrath is as much a part of His character as His love. It is not a new characteristic which developed at the fall of mankind or the rebellion of Satan. It is an eternal and everlasting attribute. It has been in Him from before all worlds. It is unchanging in its character. But it is progressive in how we experience it. God is not becoming more wrathful, but the fruit of God's wrath is ripening. It is becoming more and more obvious in our experience of it. And we see that in the Old Covenant and the New. In the Old Covenant, we see it in the days of Noah. My son was copying the Bible, and and he loves the story of Noah because his name is Noah. And last night we were reading what he wrote. In those days, the wickedness of man was exceedingly great and filled the earth. And then God judged the earth with the flood. The wrath of God did not increase from Genesis 1 through Genesis 9. But the ripening, the 
effect of God's wrath ripened so that it became in the full force at the flood. It becomes crystal clear in the new covenant at the cross. For in past times and ages, God overlooked, passed over your sins. But in this last day, He has judged your sins in His Son at the cross. So we see the progressiveness of the experience of the wrath of God in the life of Christ at the moment of the cross. But never misunderstand that His wrath is eternal. It was before all worlds, and it is parallel with love and mercy and just. Justice. Never misunderstand who God is in that. God, but God. This this one little phrase changes everything. We have this dark and bleak background. Fallen, completely fallen sinners. Incapable of helping themselves. And then the phrase, but God. The foolishness of preaching is this. Part of it is this. That I stand in front of an audience. If anyone in this audience, which probably there are some, if anyone in this audience is without Christ and dead in their sins, this is what it is like. I might as well be in the graveyard preaching to tombstones. Because these, these who are outside of Christ are dead. Therefore, Paul says, we are not peddlers of the gospel. We're not salesmen trying out the latest sales techniques to get you to buy our product. You can't buy because you are dead. The foolishness of preaching is, is that by itself it is totally powerless. But when a man rises and preaches the word of God... The Word of God is then carried by the Spirit of God into the very marrow of that man, into the very heart of that man, and strikes him with the the bleakness and the depressiveness and the hopelessness of his condition, and then offers to him Christ, showing him with new eyes to see the resurrection has occurred, and now he in faith believes in Jesus Christ, preaching his power. It only is powerful because of the powerful nature of God, not because of me, not because of the power of communication, not because of anything except God and God only. And so, verses 1 through 3 bring us to verse 4 to display who God is. And Paul expounds who God is. And he does it by saying what he has done. We see who, God, who we are. We see who God is. And what has God done? What has God done? If we look at this passage, it becomes so clear. But God. God. Sovereign. Powerful. All-powerful. All-knowing. Holy. And wrathful. This is the God we're speaking of. But God being rich in mercy. Because... Of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. I quickly want to say to you, the only hope you have is the fact that God is rich in mercy, great in love, and benevolent in His giving. He is rich in mercy. I want you to see the stark contrast. Paul's working the contrast. When you read the NIV, it's a great translation. My children have NIVs. When you read the NIV, they rearrange verse 4. If you have an NIV, look at it. It says, because of His great love with which He loved us, God, they rearrange the phrase. It makes more sense that way in English. But they destroy the parallel Paul is building when they rearrange it. Typically, I'm okay with rearranging because it helps us understand better. But I'm not okay here. Because what Paul is working hard to do is to contrast the exceeding sinfulness of man with the exceeding goodness of God. And so he paints the exceedingly wicked picture and then puts in the phrase, But God. It needs to stay in that way. But God. So that we're contrasting now. So that we're looking at a different picture now. We're exceedingly wicked, but who is God? That's what we're forced to ask. He is rich in mercy. God is being shown, His character is being shown through what He does in this passage. He is rich in mercy. So in verses 1 through 3, we see man is bankrupt. But in verse 4, we see God is rich. In verses 1 through 3, we see that man is minuscule, minute, meaningless, dead. But in verse 4, we see God is great. In verses 1 through 3, we see people who are incapable of action. And in verse 4, we see a God who is very active. In verses 1 through 3, we see humankind as a whole. And all of them are under the weight of God's wrath. But in verse 4, we see that because of His greatness, of His love, and the richness of His mercy... He has extended His grace to make us alive. You see the contrast? Mankind in verses 1 through 3 and God in verse 4 and 5. So, He is rich in mercy. He is rich in hesed, covenant love. That's what the word mercy means. But God is rich in mercy, in His covenant love. He is overflowing. He is abounding. He is not lacking. He has all of it. He is covenant love. He is mercy. He doesn't just love. He is love. He's not just merciful. He is mercy. He's not just gracious. He is grace. You see it? You are loving. You are merciful sometimes. You are gracious Only, only in part. But God is all loving. God is all mercy. God is all grace. He's the definition 
Now we see that the dark background allows the contrasting light to jump off at us. He's totally different from us. He is not like us. God is rich in His mercy and His covenant love, and He is overflowing. The picture here is that the treasure of God in heaven is so great that it cannot be contained, and so it is raining down on the hearts of mankind, those He loves and is saving. Mercy, by definition, is not getting what we deserve. So it's right that he puts it at the beginning of the contrast. But God, you and we, you Gentiles and us Jews, were all under the wrath of God. But God is merciful. He's not giving us what we deserve. You have earned God's wrath. But God is giving you mercy. It's not getting what I deserve. He is merciful. Because, why is He merciful? How can He be merciful? Because of His great love. Exceeding love. Unnatural love. Agape love. He loves. He is love and He loves actively. But again, we must define it because it's not Eris. It's not romantic. On this Valentine's weekend, we would be wrong to display God as a romantic in heaven, as one popular writer did and has in his book, Wild at Heart. God is not some lovesick lover, desperate to find a mate. No, no. God is love. And this is how He defines His love. His love is present in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. For God in this way loved the world. How did He love the world? He gave His only begotten Son. Sinner, you have no right to claim the love of God. Outside of Christ. You have no claims on the love of God. Outside of Christ. God's love is contained and portrayed in the person of His Son. So God who is all love is portraying His love through the one man, Jesus Christ. Who contains the essence of the love of God. So the offer of the love of God to the world is not universal. It is confined to those who are Believing in Christ. For God in this way loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God differentiates His love. He doesn't love people who go to hell the way He loves those of us who are in His family. It is not a universal love in that sense. His love is specific. It is poured out in His Son to the believers. Everyone else outside of Christ receives wrath. Everyone outside of Christ cannot receive mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now I want to close here for today. 
And we're going to recap again next week and keep moving. But I want to say this. It's so crucial you get this. You sinner sitting there saying, what must I do to have this God? I mean, what, 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 what do I need to say? What do I need to give? How can I earn? How can I gain? What should I do? Tell me. And the answer is, you can do nothing. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, when we were, when we were dead in our trespasses, sinner, you can't do anything to earn God's love. There's no process by which you put the God of the universe into a position where He must love you. You can't do it. God's love is not a commodity traded on the open market. You are hopeless in your original condition. You are sinful. Listen. You did not take a step towards God and then God met you halfway. You did not hear the gospel and believe it and so God was then obligated to save you. You were dead, powerless, unable to do anything, and God made you alive. This is His mercy. This is His love. This is His grace. He made you alive. And conversely, when He makes you alive, you can do nothing ever again to deserve and gain His wrath. Now that you are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. That is only a true statement if we maintain that God is the author and the finisher of our faith. So it is a completely desperate situation that you are in, sinner. You are at the absolute mercy of God. You have no hope to merit, earn, deserve His love. You can only have His wrath, but God, because He is loving you, displays His rich mercy in giving you His Son. And He made you alive so that you might hold to Him in faith. Life doesn't happen and then it brings about salvation. I mean, salvation doesn't happen and it brings about life. Life happens and the result is salvation. You don't believe in God and then He saves you. God makes you alive and saves you, bringing forth the fruit of belief. So conversely, saved person here this morning, coming off a weekend where you have failed Him miserably, off a month where you have not been faithful, You have not lost it. 
your salvation. You never earned it, so you can't lose it. Do you deserve His wrath? Yes, but He will not give you His wrath because you have His Son. The confidence we have in our salvation is not arrogance so that we think we found an answer and we saved ourselves and so therefore we cannot be lost. The confidence of our salvation comes from the fact we know ourselves to be exceedingly wicked, deserving nothing but the wrath of God, and yet God because He is loving and merciful, has given His grace to us in His Son and saved us completely and utterly by grace. And therefore, we cannot lose salvation because no one can take us from the hand of our Father. No one can accept us from the love of God. No one can bring a charge against us that this all-knowing, all-powerful God doesn't already know and having already covered it, forgiven it, and forgotten it, now bring it back to His court. Nothing can stand against you, not because of you, but because of Him. This is the grace of God. And Calvin said at this point, this, oh sinner, this is why we fall at His feet in praise and in worship, because He is God, because He is merciful, because He is gracious, because He is loving, because He is not giving us what we deserve. He is giving us what we could never earn. He is giving us Himself. He is giving us Himself. And so if you here today, in the condition of being in your sin, have heard these words, and the Spirit of God has quickened your soul, all I'm saying do is confess it. Call on them. And I repeat to you Jesus' words. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. All who come to me, I will by no means cast out. You hear the gospel? You understand it? Come to him. He will not cast you out. Come to Him, sinner. Saved man and woman and child, are you here under a weight of guilt and sin? Are you doubting your salvation? Are you questioning? Then the solution is this. Look to Him. Come to Him. Call to Him. Grasp hold to Him in faith and have confidence in His salvation. I'm not asking you to emotionally respond. I'm not begging and pleading you. I'm not going to twist your arm. But the offer stands. If He is calling, come to Him. Believe in Him. Grasp hold of Him. Having done so, have confidence in Him. So much so that when you sin, you chase Satan and sin away by the name of Christ. Your conscience is being buffeted. I can see it. I can feel it. 
our flesh is crying out, this can't be it. It can't be this simple. God could never love me. And our enemy is saying, don't believe that. That's not for you. And the only reply you can make that is effective is, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then cling to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven.